You're listening to Mystery Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will discuss a priest, a teen, two reunions, and a magical rock, a recap of Unsolved Mysteries Season 1, Episode 9. and welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. If you're new around here, thanks so much for joining in. Um, This was definitely a good episode to select to break your Mystery Still Unsolved virginity because we are covering an Unsolved Mysteries episode. I love these episodes, A, because there's usually a lot of information and vetted information too, which is extremely important. And B, and most importantly, because the episodes are hosted by none other than the love of my life, Mr. Robert Stack, better known as Robert Late Night Snack. (laughs) Uh, March is upon us, which of course means our February Valentine's Day series has come to a bitter end. But I was looking at my schedule of upcoming episodes and boy, are y'all in for a real treat. I am so excited for this next little bit. As always, if you have an unsolved case that you would like me to look into and cover on an episode, shoot me a DM. I love covering cases that you want to hear about. Before we get started with today's episode, there's just a little bit of housekeeping. First, if you're not already following me on Instagram at Mysteries Still Unsolved, uh, you should be. There you can get behind the scenes on stories. You can comment on the posts that I make every single week that include pictures or videos from the crimes that we cover. You can share your thoughts, theories, opinions, and interact with others in the Mysteries Still Unsolved community. You'll also be the first one to know whenever we host giveaways and every once in a while, I'll even pop in on stories and we'll have a great little chat. Um, We also have a website, www.mysteriesstillunsolved. There you can go and binge my now 72. Yes, you heard right. That's 72, 72 episodes. You can, of course, listen to this podcast wherever you enjoy doing so. But www.mysteriesstillunsolved is always there for you. Should your podcast host ever run into a hiccup and you're dying for some true crime in your life. I've been there. I've been there too. Okay, if you love this podcast, you like what you're hearing, and you think more people should know about it, uh, one, you're not alone. I also agree with you. And two, leave me a review so that way more people will listen in. Okay, I think that's about it for today. So without further delay, let's get on with today's fabulous Unsolved Mysteries recap episode. The episode begins with a montage of three prepubescent boys running through a field of flowers. Robert Late Night Snack tells us that in Newburgh, Ohio, on October 28, 1981, three young boys made a grisly discovery. At first, the boys thought they had come upon a mannequin, and we're all true crime crazies over here, so we know that it's never a mannequin. But upon further inspection, they got spooked as they confirmed that it was, in fact, a real human body. Besides some minor scratches and bruises, the body did not exhibit any physical harm. One of the teen's tennis shoes had been removed and was placed about 12 feet away from his body. The other shoe was missing. 
The police agreed that the body seemed staged there. They never believed that this was the site where the teenage boy actually died. A few hours later, it was confirmed that the body of the boy belonged to 17-year-old Kurt Sova. The coroner's report stated that Kurt had died about 24 to 36 hours before his body was found. However, Kurt had actually been missing for five days. Kurt's parents, Dorothy and Ken, approached Unsolved Mysteries with a desperate plea. They wanted people to please help them find out what happened to their son within those five days, and they would also like to know what exactly caused Kurt's death. Robbie returns to tell us that the death of any seemingly healthy and happy 17-year-old boy would be tragic. However, this case is compounded and shrouded in a veil of mystery, and that makes it even more difficult for Kurt's parents. Okay, so let's rewind a little bit and get to know a little bit more about Kurt before his disappearance and his subsequent death. Kurt lived with his parents, obviously he's a teenager, in a blue-collar neighborhood in a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. He was the youngest of four sons, and he was the closest to his parents out of all of the boys. Dorothy said that she never really worried about Kurt. Kurt had never gotten in trouble in school or with neighbors or with the police. He was a mild-tempered and well-mannered young man, and that's why she just simply cannot understand what happened. Kurt left home for the last time on October 23, 1981. One block away from his house, he met up with a friend. It was from this friend that he heard about a party that would be taking place in a few hours. After discussing things with his friends, they decided to forgo the plans that they had already made to go to a haunted house and instead go to this party. And his parents never saw him alive again. Dorothy says it was very much unlike him to not come home at night. It was unlike him to stay out past 10.30 or 11 o'clock. And the only reason that he was able to stay out between 10.30 and 11 o'clock is because he had prearranged that with his parents. So they knew that he was going to be a little bit late. By Saturday morning, Kurt's parents were panicked, obviously. Um, Dorothy called the numbers of all of Kurt's friends to ask if they had seen him. Ken got in his car and began scouring the city in hopes of just, like, stumbling upon him. When he came home to Dorothy, he started to get really worried because Dorothy said that she had called all of his known friends to them, and no one had any idea where he was. On Sunday, the Sovas registered Kurt as a missing person with their local police department. Dorothy and Ken made missing posters and plastered them all over town, as any mother I know would do in this situation. Even though Dorothy knew police were looking for her son, she couldn't help but search also. She said she looked at ravines, she checked riverbeds, and even checked city dumpsters looking for her boy. On Sunday afternoon, Dorothy got a lead. One of the friends she had called the morning after he went missing called her back. He said that he had heard that Kurt had gone to a party on Friday night at an apartment complex called Newburgh Heights. It was about two miles from where the Sovas lived. So, Dorothy, like the badass mom that she is, took it upon herself to check out this lead on her own. Dorothy went to the duplex. She knocked on the door and asked for Susan, which is the name of the girl that the friend said that was throwing the party. So she asked if Susan was there. Um, a woman answered the door and said that Susan wasn't there just then. She was just the babysitter and um, that Susan would be back home later. 
When Susan returned home, she called Dorothy and told her that she had never met her son and that she actually hadn't even thrown a party on Friday. Despite what Susan claimed, a pizza delivery man was able to confirm that he had delivered pizzas to that address on that Friday night and that there did seem to be some sort of gathering or party taking place. Dorothy contacted Susan again, and this time Susan admitted that he, Kurt, had been at the party. There were about a dozen or so people in attendance that night. Most of the attendees were much older than Kurt. Most of them were people that he'd never met before. Susan told Dorothy that Kurt had been drinking quite heavily that night. Those who were friends with Kurt didn't know him to be a heavy drinker, so this was pretty out of character for him. Kurt had a slight build, which lowered his tolerance for alcohol. Dorothy was also surprised by this information because she never knew Kurt drank, and to say that, I mean, of course you didn't. You're his mom, and Kurt is a teenage boy, so he's not stupid. He's not going to, like, just tell his parents that he's drinking. Um, but the guy who Kurt went to the party with told the Sovas that Kurt had been drinking a lot and that he had gotten sick. So he said that he took Kurt outside to just, like, get some fresh air. And because it was cold, he went back inside to find Kurt's jacket. He claims that when he came back down, Kurt was gone. On Wednesday, October 28th, five days after he left home, Kurt's body was found less than 500 feet from the duplex where he had last been seen. The lieutenant of the Newburgh Police Department at the time this episode was aired believes that the person or persons who placed Kurt's body there knew the area well, and they knew that people rode dirt bikes and went for runs right past that lot. He believes that the people involved intended for Kurt's body to be found because they wanted it to be found soon. Kurt's body was taken in for an autopsy. Like I said earlier, it was determined that he had been dead for roughly 24 to 36 hours. This would mean that Kurt had been alive for almost three days after he disappeared from the party. What the coroner could not determine, however, was the cause of Kurt's death. The coroner, who looks a lot like Colonel Sanders from KFC, (laughs) said that they ruled the death a probable accident, only because they had ruled out other more, like, foul play types of causes, the coroner says that Kurt had not been beaten, his body had not experienced any sort of trauma, he didn't seem to have enough alcohol in his system that would explain why his life ended. So he didn't have any evidences of disease either. So that's how they made this probable accident claim based on exclusions. Dorothy says Quote, she can't imagine someone dumping an animal back in a ravine, let alone a human body, end quote. She just wants to know what happened to her son. After the initial shock of Kurt's death abated, Dorothy began to do a little digging, and what she found was a series of bizarre events that left her with only more unanswered questions. On Monday, three days after Kurt was reported missing, a friend named David swore he saw Kurt walking down a busy street with another teenager his age. Dave said that he was on his way to a job interview when he spotted Kurt and another person that he didn't recognize. He said he decided to pull over and offer Kurt a ride. But just then, a van pulled over as well, and Dave heard Kurt yell, Franco! And then the two men ran over to the van and got inside. Dave was unaware in that moment that Kurt was missing. He says if he would have known, he would have done something. He would have followed the van or or just something, but he just didn't know. Two days later, Dave learned that Kurt was dead. 
Also on Monday, an unknown stranger who had been seen wandering around the Sova's neighborhood saw a poster hanging in the window of a local record store. This stranger entered the store and approached the cashier. He said something along the lines of, quote, Do you know that boy in the poster over there? You might as well take it down. He's going to be found dead in two days, and no one's going to know how he died, end quote. It was certainly a cryptic message, but the cashier was skeptical. The next day, when she went in early to open up the record store, she found flowers and a note by the door, and the note read, quote, Roses are red, the sky is blue, they found that dead boy, and they'll find you too, end quote. <laughs> oh my god, so creepy. Police questioned him and said he was just some nut job from Detroit. However, when police interviewed him, Kurt was just missing. His body had not been found in the ravine yet. There was no evidence that he had died. So, with like no real reason to keep him there, they let this creepy stranger go. Later, when Kurt turned up dead and the police realized that his prophecy had come true, they tried to track down this Looney Tune but he was nowhere to be found. He was just gone. On Wednesday morning, the same Wednesday that Kurt would later be discovered dead, Dorothy received an early morning phone call from that girl, Susan, you know, the one who threw the party. The Susan girl told Dorothy that she had a reason to believe that someone was living in her basement and that it could possibly be Kurt. Dorothy didn't know whether to believe her or not, only because Susan had told her so many lies in the past. Ken, Kurt's father, went to the apartment duplex complex and searched the basement. He thought maybe Kurt was sick or hurt and maybe had like just stumbled into the basement. All right, so let's just pause a bit because I know that there are probably a few people listening in who are like, how the hell would someone be able to sleep in someone's basement without them knowing? Okay, so... I don't know how it is in other places, so apologies if I'm over-explaining, but on the East Coast, it's pretty standard to have a house that is like transformed into a duplex. So there's a main door to the house, which is normally left unlocked to the street. And then when you enter, there is a door straight ahead of you, and that door is locked, and that's the entrance to apartment, apartment number one. And then to your right or your left, there's a staircase that will take you up to another door that is also locked, and this leads to apartment number two. The staircase and the basement are shared by the two tenants. So in theory, you if you didn't lock that main door, the one that led to the street, someone could come off the street and sleep in the basement without anybody knowing, especially if the units have their own washer and dryer, then there really wouldn't be a need for a tenant to go down into the basement unless there was like some sort of a maintenance issue. I actually lived in a little green duplex like this when I was a kid from like the age of four to 10. And I remember my brother and I being so scared <laughs> to go down to the basement alone. We would like dare each other to go down there. I also remember that my mom would always lock the main door that led outside, but the tenants underneath us never did. So whenever we would leave our apartment, my mom would check the peephole to make sure that like no crazy pants from off the street have like come in and was like waiting to attack us or something. And it makes sense. We did live on kind of a busy street in New York. There was a bar a little bit down the hill from us and drunks would kind of stumble up the hill and pee on our big oak trees. <laughs> so it was a rational worry that she had to think that maybe somebody could be hiding outside of our door waiting to attack us. Anyway, that was a major tangent, but I just wanted to explain how someone sleeping in someone's basement without their knowledge might occur because you don't see too many duplexes like that 
out here in the West. So there you go. Um, Ken searched the whole basement where he did find a cot where it seemed like someone had been sleeping recently, but no one was there currently. He doesn't know for sure if the person sleeping in that cot was Kurt, but he does know that someone did sleep in that cot, but they weren't there anymore. Dorothy believes that Kurt was there. She believes that by the time her husband got there, Kurt was already dead, but she believes that he had been there in that basement. Whether or not Kurt died in the basement, Kurt's parents don't know. But one thing that they do know is that Ken, Kurt's father, had searched that very ravine where Kurt's body later turned up, and he had not been there. Ken believes that whoever put Kurt's body there did it later on in the evening. Ken said that when Kurt was found, he was wearing a bright yellow shirt, so he knows for sure he would not have missed seeing his body in the early afternoon the previous day. Three months later, Dorothy had reason to be suspicious again. In January of 1982, there was another death of a 13-year-old boy. Kurt had actually known this boy when he was alive. The, bo- the boy's name was um, Eugene Cavett. Eugene was also found dead in a ravine located only two miles from where Kurt had been found. Both boys had been missing for days preceding their deaths. And Eugene, just like Kurt, had a right shoe that was missing. The mysterious death of Kurt Sova leaves a trail of mysterious circumstances. How did he die? Where had he been for those five days where he's unaccounted for? We know at least three of them he was alive. Is Kurt's case at all connected to Eugene's or is it all just a red herring? Well, I've got to tell you, when I was watching this episode, I thought for sure I knew what had happened. I was under the impression that Kurt had gone to this party, had too much to drink, and passed out. These new friends of his were panicked, and they didn't want to call an ambulance because there was no doubt underage drinking. Um, Who knows what else, honestly. So I figured they probably just set him up in a cot down in the basement, hoping that he would sleep it off and come to, and then he just never did. So they panicked and tried to cover it up. But then he died, and they freaked and put him out in the ravine. I figured during the ME report, when they did the toxicology labs, that the blood alcohol content was low because if he had drank on Friday to the point of excess but then lived, although not conscious for several days, wouldn't the blood alcohol content not be as high or saturated? I don't know. Those were kind of my thoughts that I was thinking while I was watching the episode. Like, I seriously was so convinced that that was what happened. But then we get this curveball thrown into the mix of this super creepy guy who's predicting Kurt is dead before he turns up dead, and then this eerily similar death of another boy. And now I'm like, do we have a serial killer on our hands? Do we have a copycat killer? It's so frustrating. Ken and Dorothy continue to believe that one day they will get the answers that they want. Dorothy says she will not have peace until she knows. This is why she says she will not give up until the day she herself is buried in the ground right next to Kurt. It has been almost 41 years since Kurt died, and the case to this day remains classified as a probable accident. However, the case was recently reopened, and investigators hope to determine exactly how Kurt died. All right, so I did a little bit of digging, of course, because I, like you, am a couch potato sleuth. Um, In one article, I read that Kurt had skipped school the Friday before he attended the party. Like, I guess not the Friday before, but like he missed school. Then there were a couple of hours he went to the party. 
Also, this group of friends that he spent Friday night with was not his usual group of friends. They were new and could explain why he was getting involved um, with all of these new things. So like he had never skipped school before, but he skipped school that day because he was probably hanging out with his new friends. Um, And then he never drank, but maybe he was drinking to kind of like impress these new friends. Um, Another article mentioned that he had spent most of the night drinking grain alcohol. I wasn't really sure what the difference between grain alcohol and like regular alcohol was. So (laughs) I decided to look it up. And this is where things got a little interesting. Okay, so apparently grain alcohol is extremely potent. You typically want to use it when you are making a mixed drink as as opposed to drinking it straight because it can be dangerous. The article I found said that it can lead to alcohol intoxication even in small quantities. It also stated that, quote, most people who drink grain alcohol don't take it straight in its pure form because even a few drops can be toxic, end quote. I found this interesting because Kurt's mother, Dorothy, and his previous friends said that Kurt wasn't really a drinker. And I would assume that this would make Kurt a little naive when it comes to like alcoholic beverages. Is it possible that because of Kurt's age and inexperience with alcohol that he didn't know that you're not supposed to drink grain alcohol by itself? It says even a few drops can be toxic. This is making me feel like my theory from before could be correct. But then again, how would that explain the toxicology reports? They claim that there wasn't enough alcohol in his system to cause a death. So, I found an article on the Mayo Clinic website where it stated, you can consume a fatal dose before you pass out. Even when you're unconscious or you've stopped drinking, alcohol continues to be released from your stomach and intestines into your bloodstream, and the level of alcohol in your body continues to rise. On another site called American Addiction Centers, I found that the blood alcohol content of a person cannot be found through typical means, such as like blood, breath, urine, or saliva after 24 hours of digesting it, but it can be found in hair samples. And so that got me wondering if this method has been done in Kurt's case. Kurt's mother, father, and brothers have all passed away over the years, all except for one brother, Kevin. Kevin was the oldest of the brothers, and he claims that Kurt's death tore the family apart. He said, quote, Kurt came up missing then he came up dead. Life was never the same after that, end quote. Kevin disclosed that there was a lead that had led police to Chicago. However, they hit a brick wall with that one. Kevin says as frustrated as he is, he knows that the police department in um, Newburgh, Ohio are trying. The Newburgh Police Department confirmed that the case is definitely not closed, but it's certainly cold. Also, it doesn't help that many of the people who are at the party are aging, their memories are fading, and some of them are dying. Kevin says that there was one potential suspect the police had been really looking into quite heavily, but he was eliminated as a suspect right before he passed away. The current police chief, Chief Majoy, um, believes that it was most likely an accidental death, but he is open to any and all new evidences that could prove otherwise. If you have any information about Kurt's death, call Ka- Kuya, <laughs> I can't say this, Cuyahoga County Crime Stoppers at 216-252-7463 or the Newburgh Heights Police Department tip line at 216-386-0024. Next up is a case about lost 
love. All right, so in April of 1975, the U.S. military was fighting in Vietnam. As the war came to a head in Saigon, many refugees fled in hopes of procuring a better and safer life. To John Nellis, the son of a Vietnamese woman and an American soldier, this exodus was a nightmare. Under the cloak of darkness, John and his soon-to-be wife started their first leg of the journey that they hoped would lead them to the United States and away from all of this carnage. They loaded into the back of a military truck and narrowly escaped being shot by angry Vietnamese soldiers. John said he was terrified. He didn't know if they would make it. John and his now wife Vivian were lucky. They were able to get to the States. However, their lives are still in turmoil. You see, when John was a baby, his mother and father were separated. When his father had to return back to the United States, but his mother was not allowed. Then, when Vivian and John fled Vietnam, they were separated from John's son. John wishes to reunite with both his father and his son. John's father's name is Melvin Nellis. His mother and father met in Chaoqing, China in the 40s. Chaoqing was a focal point of the communist army. Melvin was stationed in Chaoqing. This is where he met, fell in love, and lived with John's mother. When John was five, his father was sent back to the States. As his father and mother were not legally married, she was not permitted to join him back in the United States. But Melvin promised to write. After several months, however, the letter stopped. John never heard from his father again. In 1952, John and his mother returned to Vietnam. John's mother had a lucrative market where she sold fresh produce. It didn't make them wealthy, but she was able to afford to send her son to private schools where he learned English and received a more westernized education. John said that he is extremely grateful to his mother because she spent two-thirds of all of the money that she made to send him to these private schools. In 1957, John's mother took him to the U.S. Embassy. She had fallen on hard times financially, and she was unsure if she would be able to support John anymore. She still wanted him to have a good life, so she went to the embassy to secure registration paperwork that would prove John was half American. This document was vital for John's later emigration to the United States. Later on in John's life, he got a woman pregnant, and this woman left him for an American Marine. They later married, and John was under the impression that when the Marine was sent back to America, that they had taken his son with them. John was obviously sad. I mean, he missed his son, but he was also happy for his son to go to the U.S. and receive a proper education in a much safer country. Later, after John had settled in the United States, he began his search for both his father and his son, but he was appalled when he found out that his son had been left behind in Vietnam when his ex-girlfriend and her new husband returned to the States together to start a new life. After John and Vivian's escape to the U.S., they married. They now live in an affluent Orange County neighborhood. John secured a job as a very successful electronic technician. At the time this episode was released, they had a three-year-old daughter named Vienna. Despite his new happiness, John longs to reconcile with both his father and his son. Breaking news. Thanks to this episode, John Nellis was able to learn that his father was retired and currently living in Tokyo, Japan. Surprisingly, just three weeks after finding his father, John was reunited with his son, Daniel. They then shared a montage of John and Dan, like, 
awkwardly reuniting at the airport. I mean, I say awkward, but it was awkwardly beautiful. Like, as I imagine, most of these sorts of reunions are. But then they showed some footage from a few days later, and, like, Daniel seemed a lot more relaxed in the later videos. Um, John says, quote, It's a dream come true and a miracle. Daniel said, quote, when I look into my father's eyes and I met his family and got to know them more, I found happiness, I found home, end quote. In our next case, we will discuss the unsolved murders of two Catholic priests. When someone commits to being a priest, they are committing to a life of service of God in the community in which they serve. However, their faith and willingness to serve can sometimes put them in jeopardy. Father Ronaldo Rivera of New Mexico had been murdered, and Father John Kerrigan of Montana had disappeared. Police feared that these two cases, although 2,000 miles and two years apart, may have been connected. It might even be possible that there was a serial killer at large who was targeting Catholic priests. On the evening of August 7, 1982, a call for help was placed to St. Francis Cathedral in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Father Ronaldo took the call. The caller was insistent. He wanted a priest to come over right away. He claimed that his father was dying and that he was in need of a priest to perform his father's last rites. The man said his name was Michael Carmelo, and he asked if the priest would be willing to meet him at a rest stop. Father Ronaldo said he would be happy to, and he could get there within the next 20 minutes. Father Ronaldo was reported missing that same night when he did not return home. In the morning, when he still had not returned, a broadcast was put out to let all of Santa Fe know about the disappearance of a beloved priest in the community. They knew that the caller had asked the priest to meet him in Waldo, New Mexico, so hundreds of volunteers started there and worked their way out. They searched by foot, horse, four-wheelers, helicopter, everything. They literally combed the desert in search of Father Rinaldo. Two days after the search began, Father Rinaldo's body was found on a deserted road, three miles from the rest stop. At his funeral, the entire city mourned. Everyone was appalled by the gruesome murder. One community member stated, quote, everyone mourned. It didn't matter if you were Catholic, Baptist, Jewish, or atheist. Everyone mourned that someone would be so cruel as to murder a man trying to offer an act of service, an act of love, and was killed for it, end quote. Another community choked up while saying, quote, everyone loved Father Rinaldo. I have to believe he is happy where he is now, but we do miss him, end quote. The night of the murder, a man who claimed his name was Carmelo met up with Father Rinaldo in a blue pickup truck. The lieutenant, who was actively investigating this case at the time, had a theory, and it goes as follows. He felt that there were two men waiting for the father at the rest stop. Father Ronaldo was a big man. He was like six foot two, six foot four, like 200 pounds. So he doesn't believe like just one man would be able to restrain him or coerce him into doing something. I mean, there obviously was a gun because that is uh, what caused Father Ronaldo's death was a gunshot wound, um, which police believe was used to control him. But in order to subdue him in the way that he was found, um, showed that there was likely more than one person. It is then believed that the father was taken to a remote desert area where he was later shot execution style. Police do know that he was not killed where he was found. He was killed at a separate location and then driven somewhere else where he was dumped away from his vehicle. 
they could have dumped him several places. There were like a lot of places in that area where you could like hide somebody and they wouldn't be found for for a really long time, but the lieutenant believes that they chose to display him, leading investigators to believe that they wanted his body to be found. They were trying to like go for a shock factor in the community. Afterwards, the killers returned to the rest stop and drove Father Rinaldo's car to another rest stop two hours away. This is where his car was found. There was no physical evidence found in the vehicle. Um, Apparently, they looked for fingerprints, um, blood, but it had been wiped clean. Police searched records for anyone named Michael Carmelo, but could not find anything, even when they searched, like, with FBI databases nationwide. As for motive, the police do not believe Father Rinaldo was specifically targeted. They believe that any Catholic priest would have been targeted. It wasn't the man, but the occupation that was targeted. Uh, Robbery was not a motive. Nothing was removed from Father Rinaldo's wallet. However, the last rites kit was stolen. Police believe that these killers kept it as a souvenir, so whenever they look at it, they can relive the killing. Two years later, on August 8, 1984, in Ronan, Montana, another priest, Father John Kerrigan, was missing. John Kerrigan had only been serving at his church for four days when he vanished. At 11 p.m. on the night he disappeared, John Kerrigan went across the street to a bakery to strike up conversations with the people that he would be serving. The men and women he met welcomed him to Ronan, and my next thought was, a bakery was open at 11 p.m.? Brian, let's move to Ronan, (laughs) where the people are friendly and the bakeries are open late. Yes, Please. Anyway, after a few minutes, Father Kerrigan returned home to go to bed. The next day, a fruit lowly peddler. What the hell is that? (laughs) I feel like Robert Sack is throwing some serious shade because those were his words, not mine. A lowly fruit peddler. Anyways, a lowly fruit peddler found bloody clothes on the side of the road, close to where they were selling fruit. The lowly fruit peddlers called police who came out, and it was later confirmed that the clothes belonged to Father Kerrigan. Um, The police searched the area and found a bloody coat hanger that was close by. They concluded that the coat hanger could have been used to tie someone up or strangle an individual. Uh, That is not where my head went with this hanger. Uh, My head went somewhere much darker and more sadistic, but... um, This is a family show, so you'll just have to let your mind wander a bit before you realize what I thought the intended purpose of the hanger was for. Um, I'll bet some of you veteran listeners have it in your mind, too. Um, A week later, five miles away from where his bloody clothes had been discovered, they found Father Kerrigan's car. Similarly, the car was searched for fingerprints, blood, anything at all. On the passenger side, they did find a pool of blood on the floor panel. Um, they popped the trunk all the way thinking that it's definitely possible that the murderers had placed Father Kerrigan's body inside the trunk, but you, they had not. Um, Father Kerrigan was not there. However, there was a bloody shovel and a bloody pillow inside of the trunk. There was also blood splattered inside of the trunk, leading them to believe that someone had placed Father Kerrigan in the trunk to assault him. Robbery was not a motive um, because Father Kerrigan's wallet was found and it had $1,200 inside still. 
Um, when the lieutenant from New Mexico learned about the killing in Montana, he took a flight right away to look for similarities. In both cases, the perpetrators wanted the community to know that they had killed a priest, and he believes they strategically left behind evidence so that there was no doubt that a murder of a priest had been done. Um, the two police departments, the one in Santa Fe and the one in Ronan, um, do believe and agree that it's very likely that the individuals who killed the priest in New Mexico had something to do with the priest in Montana. There are other similarities as well. Both cars were driven away from the crime scene. Um, coat hangers were used in both killings in some way or another. Um, and robbery was not a motive in either, in either um, cases. Not only does the lieutenant in New Mexico want to catch these killers, but he also makes a public plea to anyone else in the U.S. who has a similar case of a priest in their area being killed in a similar manner. He believes that these were not the killer's first murders and that it certainly won't be their last. He believes that there is a serial killer or serial killers targeting Catholic priests possibly across the country and this is how they're getting away with it. Like they're going into different jurisdictions, different states so that way people aren't talking together. Okay, so I did a little bit of sleuthing and a few things came up that were not mentioned in the Unsolved Mysteries episode so take them with a grain of salt of course. Okay, so for starters, in the episode, it claims that there was no physical evidence. However, I found out that there actually was a bloody palm print and hair samples believed to belong to the killer in the car in Montana. There also were a few suspects that were not mentioned in the show. Okay, so one person investigated was a man who apparently stole a car from a bar owner in Grants, where Father Rivera's car was found. This occurred shortly after the murder. However, the man was found to be in Albuquerque jail on the night of the murder, and so he was ruled out. Another initial suspect was a man who had been paroled just three days before the murder. He had been in and out of prison several times for robbery and drug-related offenses. After his release, he was supposed to go to a drug rehab center, but he never showed up. A palm print found on the victim's car was similar to the suspect's. He also... He was also seen in Santa Fe on the day of the murder. However, he was ruled out after his fingerprints were found to not match those in the victim's car, and two witnesses confirmed that they were with him on the night of the murder. Two more suspects were Marcus Harris and an accomplice. Uh, they were involved in the 1982 murder of another priest, Reverend Donald Hamilton from Arizona. However, they were also cleared of any involvement in Father Rivera's murder. James Ramos, the alleged killer of Father Patrick Ryan, was investigated and cleared when it was found that he was in Tennessee at the time of Father Rivera's murder. Yet another suspect allegedly robbed a church and threatened a clergyman in Utah. However, he was ruled out after it was discovered that he was not in New Mexico at the time of the murder. Police have yet another suspect that they have yet to rule out. Um, this man was connected to the crime by an anonymous tip. While serving time in New York prison, he was questioned about Father Rivera's murder. He was known to be in New Mexico around the time of the murder. In fact, he flew in from New York on the day of the murder. He was involved in several burglaries and robberies while in Santa Fe. 
interestingly, he previously had a stole he previously had stolen a La Conquistadora statue from Father Rivera's cathedral when he was arrested. Um, he hoped that the Franciscans would ask for clemency for him. However, when they didn't, he allegedly stated that he was going to get even with the priests that um, worked at that Santa Fe cathedral. The suspect also fits the psychological profiler of the killer that they got from the FBI. However, police do not have enough evidence to connect him to the murder. It is no longer believed that the cases are connected, um, Father Kerrigan and Father Rivera's, um, because Father Kerrigan was actually found to have been on a list of potential sex offenders that were involved in that whole priest molest thing that happened. Um, if you remember, Father Kerrigan had recently been transferred to Ronan and had only been there for four days when he disappeared, and it is believed that this is why he was murdered, either by a victim or a member of the victim's family. Father Rinaldo never had any such accusations made against him, so it was, it's been ruled out that, um, that they're no longer connected. On an interesting note, some people believe that the person who killed Father Reynaldo may be someone who is featured on a later episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Um, in a couple seasons, we're going to cover this case, but there's a man called William L. Toomey who committed suicide inside of a Boise, Idaho church in 1982, and Toomey has allegedly been connected to the murder of another priest. It's all just speculation, obviously, but wouldn't that be interesting if they covered, like, the the priest and his killer with, like, out knowing that that's what they were doing? Um, all right, so now we're going to talk about a magical rock, a.k.a. the biggest load of bogus I have ever heard on Unsolved Mysteries in my entire life. Robert, seriously, surely you must have called BS on this. I just cannot believe that my sweetheart, Robert Late Night Snack, could be duped by this obviously made-up story. I have to believe that he read the script and was like, do I have to? Yes, Robert, I'm sorry. You had to sacrifice your creative integrity to depict these this obviously fake story per your contract. Anyway, Robert begins to tell us this tale as a poorly played pan flute wails in the background. <laughs> On Saturday, May 14, 1988, deep in the woods of Washington near the Canadian border, a 13-year-old boy named Jamie took his friend Trevor to look at something that he had found the day before. Jamie told Trevor he had found a special rock and agreed to take Trevor to it. In the river was a huge boulder with like these inscriptions all over it. Uh, the two decided to tell Trevor's dad about it. Steve said he felt compelled to go and said that the energy radiating from the boys and their excitement about their discovery was rather contagious, so he stopped whatever it was that he was doing and followed them into the woods. He said, just as the boys had claimed, there was a special rock in the river. He felt like this rock was amazing and that it had something special to say. Patty Johnson, Trevor's mother, said that when she saw the rock, she immediately had a good feeling about it, a very positive feeling, but granted there are no words that she can find to accurately describe her feelings about the rock. Immediately after the discovery, Steve and Patty Johnson's luck began to improve, and they would later attribute all of the credit to this magical, mystical rock. 
For years, Patty and Stephen had struggled financially. To help pay bills, Patty had taken on another job as a receptionist. Even so, the two found themselves in a great deal of debt. Patty said, things were really meager. Think like Oregon Trail and you have to like switch the food rations to meager. Like real bad girl. Anyways, to improve their situation, the Johnsons decided to open a small 100 square foot shop in a local mall. Patty quit her job so that she could run the shop, but there were delays with construction and instead of improving their financial situation, it worsened. Uh, Yeah, buddy, I could have told you that, but anyway. On May 16th, 48 hours after seeing The Rock, Steve's luck began to change dramatically. Out of the blue, the mall called him and said that they had a 1,000 square foot shop available. The gentleman told them, don't worry about inventory, we're going to pay for it. The two were flabbergasted. Three weeks later in early June, their shop opened and it was an extreme success. Three days after the successful opening of their shop, the mall approached Steve and asked him to manage their movie theater. The management was so impressed with Steve that in less than a month, they let him buy the theater for an extremely low price, like way below Kelly Blue Book sales, okay? Uh, 90 days later, Steve and, his, Steve and Patty opened up a successful candy store in the same mall. Their third successful business venture in just two months. The summer before this episode was filmed, an archaeologist made his way over to the rock to analyze it. Um, Dr. McClure says he doesn't believe that the petroglyphs were made by an ancient Native American tribe. Um, He believes that the inscriptions were made in this century and that they have no religious significance or magical powers. The luck of the Johnsons continued to be on the up and up. Just a week after the episode filmed, they were offered a five-bedroom house rent-free for the next four years, and all they have to do is just, like, make minor repairs as they come up. For the Johnsons, this was a dream come true. Steve said as he looks back at all of the things that have happened, they're making good money, they own several successful businesses, and they're spending more time together as a family. Robert... But anyways, he like he attributes all of this to the magic rock because he's like, well, I was down on my luck and then I saw this magical rock and its interruptions and then everything was on the up and up. And Robert, my love, Robert, cannot help but almost laugh as he says his final line in today's episode. He says, most of us would describe these events as pure coincidence, but perhaps the line between coincidence and something more is an unsolved mystery of its own. No, Robert, no! Fire your scouts immediately because that was the lamest thing that you've ever covered and that is the lamest thing that you've ever said on this show. Also, how come the Johnsons had such great luck but the original boy, Jamie, who found it, it seems like their family got diddly squat and they weren't even featured on the episode. Probably because they didn't want to associate themselves with the Johnsons' BS. So, I did a little bit of digging, and the rock is located in Tumwater Creek near Port Angeles, Washington. Um, Most of the people in the area believe that it's all shisha. Um, But if you want to go and look at the rock, you are certainly more than welcome. Um, I tried to find information about Stephen and Patty and, like, what's going on with them now, but I wasn't able to find anything. So I was able to find a Reddit thread where someone claimed to be Trevor Johnson's little brother, but it's an old thread, so I doubt he even reads the comments anymore, and I doubt that it even really was his little brother. It's probably just, like, some person trying to get their five minutes of fame. But, yeah, that's it. 
Um, kind of a letdown story to an otherwise interesting episode. Um, what do you think about today's cases? Do you have a thought, theory, or opinion that you would like to share? Go to my Instagram post about today's episode and let me know. It can be found on Instagram at mysterystillunsolved. Um, don't forget you can binge our now 72, that's 72 episodes on any podcast platform that you enjoy. Or as always, you can visit my site, www.mysterystillunsolved.com, where all of the episodes are there so you can listen to them. Don't forget to leave me a review if you like what you hear and help more people like you find me. You could also tell a friend or a family member about me. I want everyone to know about Mystery Still Unsolved and don't feel confined to only tell family and friends. Tell your secretary, your accountant, your geek squad tech support, dude. Any, teleme- any telemarketers who try to hustle you, shout it from the rooftops. Um, anyways, thank you so much for joining me today. I very much appreciate your continued support of this podcast. Join me next week when together we'll discover did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved?